0: I think having knowledge of the future, even when that future is frightening, is powerful and is reassuring.
1: Welcome to Sciencetown, a podcast about the most unique research community on the planet. With every episode, we will bring you cutting-edge tech, science, and startup culture through the eyes of pioneering men and women their journeys cross disciplines and cross borders in the pursuit of world-changing science.
2: Hello, I'm Nicholas DeMille. Welcome to Episode 10 of Science Town. The SARS-CoV-2 virus has transited the globe, causing both disruption and calls to action for scientists and the institutions they work in. We reached out to some of the mathematicians, geneticists, and computer scientists putting their skills to work to help solve the COVID-19 crisis. In this episode, we explore science in quarantine and the things smart people get up to when the lab is closed and global science is called to action.
0: I study things like uh, water waves, right, and, you know, water waves. The wave is made up of lots of tiny molecules, and of course, we can't uh, model every one of these individual molecules, and they're all moving with you know, random motion, but we can predict very accurately the motion of the whole wave.
2: That's David Ketchison. He's an associate professor of applied mathematics at KAUST.
0: I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm a mathematician, but I study dynamical systems, which means systems that change in time, right? And... We describe these systems through differential equations. It's similar in epidemiology. We can't predict, you know, the actions of individual people, but in a large population, we can accurately predict the overall spread. Yeah. So in this model, the, the, you know, the people are like these molecules. They're, the assumption is that they're randomly, uh, running into each other, right? Mm -hmm. Having contact with each other. And when, so there's, Three different groups of people. There are the susceptible people who haven't got the disease yet but could. There's the infected people who have it and can pass it to others. And there's recovered, which is people who have already had the disease and are now immune to it. Mm. Right. Yeah, so this is the very simplest of what are called uh, compartmentalized epidemiological models, right? Because it puts people into three different compartments. Mm-hmm. And there are more complicated models, right, where you might be sick but not infectious yet or quarantined, or things like that. Um, so this is the simplest, but uh, it's already uh, powerful enough to predict, um, in in general terms, what is happening right now, and to predict it fairly accurately. Right. Uh, so there are two important parameters in this model. Right? Uh, one, and this is how you can characterize any exponentially growing uh, trend, is the doubling time. How long does it take? You know to go from X number of infected people to 2X. For the coronavirus, it seems to be around three or four days. Okay. And the other important uh, parameter is the basic reproduction number, which just means uh, on average for each person that catches this, how many other people do they pass it to?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's just a function of how many people, uh, one individual tends to come in contact with, right? Because initially, almost everyone is susceptible, so anyone they come in close contact with, uh, they'll transmit the disease to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, uh, there are widely ranging estimates for that, but, uh, in the absence of the extreme measures that we're taking to slow it down now, that number was estimated to be around three. Yeah, so everybody's familiar now, I think, through the media with this, this curve that's predicted right. precisely by this SIR model. That's where this curve comes
2: from. Mm-hmm. Right? How is understanding uh, the changes in those three populations going to help us uh, in the coming months?
0: I think having knowledge of the future, even when that future is frightening, uh, is powerful and is reassuring. Right? It can yeah. it, The unknown is the most fearful thing of all. Um so and and in this case, what's coming is something that would be hard to anticipate, right? because, like I said, we don't have a lot of experience with exponential growth, right? we're seeing that uh, you know there's there's um more than twice as many you know cases now as there were a week, a week ago, and next week there'll be more than twice as many as there are now right. right That's just something that comes as a surprise to us in general because we're used to you know more gradually. More gradual trends. Um, so first, there's that, right? Just the the sort of uh, mental reassurance that comes from having some idea of what to expect in the future, right? Uh, and I think that's important on an individual level, but for the level of you know communities and nations, right, and the world as a whole, uh, why this is important is because uh, with it with something that grows exponentially by the time it seems important, it's too late to do right. much about it
2: yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. you have to act uh, while it still seems unimportant because, and, and to do that, to have the motivation right, the political will to do that you have to know uh, with you know, high certainty that it's going to become extremely important very soon
2: David, thank you for for joining us, and um, you you and your family stay safe.
0: Thank you. You too.
2: Thank you. Take care. You're
1: listening to Science Town.
2: Hi, Xiangling.
3: Hi, this is Xiangling.
2: Hi. How are you doing? Good. I'm speaking with Xiangling Zhang. She's an associate professor of computer science at Kaust. Zhang is trying to understand changes and how people around the world feel during these highly uncertain times using analysis of social media.
3: So actually, uh, I had this idea um, since, I think, several weeks ago, and um, I was wondering how can I use what... I am doing in my field to help people uh, in this very uh, special uh, crisis. What what fields?
2: What field are you in? Just so, just so people I, know.
3: Yeah, I I'm, I work on machine learning and artificial intelligence. Right. Yeah, so uh, I'm not working on the medical or biology or other fields. So I work a lot on using machine learning to precise uh, the text. Ah, text. See. For example, we can have. Uh, Please, people posted on Twitter and we can have uh, some other information from social media. Hmm. So in, among these uh, very uh, very uh, special crisis we, we are facing now, so people may share how they feel uh, on social media platforms. Yeah. So I feel probably anxious and I believe many people have the similar feeling. So I want to help all the people understand the, how the other people are feeling. You are not alone. So um, do some sentiment analysis, emotion analysis on the Twitter uh, platform. Mm-hmm. So the the general picture is we get the tweets um, from everywhere. People are talking about coronavirus or they use this hashtag like um, COVID-19 or they use hashtag like coronavirus. And we do collection of these tweets. And based on what we have in our uh, in our research field, because we did a lot of this kind of study before, and then we can try to understand the people's um, emotions.
2: Could this also be used for you to understand uh, or track um, misinformation, for instance? Like, is that any a parameter that you're you're looking at?
3: Actually, we had uh, these. Uh, so I, I actually, I, I wrote a proposal in the very beginning. <laughs> I had several directions. One is I want to use a uh, to predict the outbreak. Okay. So, yeah, because I, I, I heard from some of my friends like last month. Uh, for example, a doctor in Egypt was trying to share what he observed in Egypt, saying there are many people having this symptoms and but we have no... Uh, test and we don't know how to confirm and so we probably can get some information like this and then trying to predict in which area uh, people are having symptoms but people probably not aware of this.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah okay, take thank care. you you too
3: take care bye bye-bye.
1: Science Town, brought to you by KAUST. My name is uh, Intikhab Alam, and uh, my title is, uh, what you call it, senior uh, research scientist. The virus is named as, uh, SARS-CoV-2. So what we see is there were only 10 genes in this particular virus. So technically, we thought we could dwell into and find out what could we understand based on this sequence of the genome? Mm-hmm. And uh, then we were trying to see, for example, comparing it with what we know today. For example, say there are um, about twenty other reference genomes from similar coronaviruses, not necessarily only for human, but they are from some other what you call it uh, uh, host. Right. It even include some animals and some bats. and our Yeah, animals. bats, yeah. So, I mean, we, what we then tried to do, or we were looking into world, I mean, if we compare this particular genome with many other similar chronoviruses, mm-hmm. do we get something which is uh, unique or something which we could target towards identification of this particular virus and towards the therapy or something towards therapeutics? to understand that this could, it could, could be something which could help in solving some of the problems. Mm-hmm. When we uh, saw some uh, animal model studies which were done on SARS, specifically targeting these features in the gene I'm talking about, and uh, they used a few drugs which uh, were tested and they were able to completely, uh, what you call it, uh, relieve the host from these complications. Mm. And these drugs are basically available for what you call some other purposes. In general, they're approved drugs. Mm. But these could be directly used in uh, what you call it uh, relieving the host, Mm -hmm. which do have the infection from this virus, uh, from this ARDS condition.
2: Give me the universe uh, as we know it for coronaviruses would there potentially be thousands of of variants and and depending on um, the number of variants uh, what makes them different from say sars to a a covid what uh, how how do we how do we identify them as different
1: right so i mean uh, when i said variant what i meant was other members of the same family of coronaviruses which mm-hmm. are what you call it uh, quite different but, but they have a set of genes which defines the core genome that, they, that these genes are present in all of those coronaviruses but within those some genes are slightly more variant for example one of the genes which we found was considered as a core gene in all coronaviruses but it's Uh, nucleic acid sequence is uh, different than any other group which is present in this particular family of coronaviruses and this subgroup which for example shows this particular cluster shares this sequence only with the SARS virus Mm -hmm. the SARS-CoV-1 we call it so this is about the reference genome but then another uh, situation arose now which we are trying to to provide information into the dashboard, which uh, Carlos Swartz and other people are working.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's about isolates of the SARS-CoV-2 genome, which were obtained from patients which do have this infection. Mm-hmm. And these isolates are being available from several different countries. And there, we are now trying to make two uh, resources. One is trying to look at what distances are there in these isolates, is this virus mutating? Yeah. Because it's a natural tendency of viruses to make mistakes when they make a copy so that they uh, think that means one of the copies will survive. This is a mechanism of virus for survival. And these uh, mutations could be what you call it totally, uh, like not causing anything,
0: mm-hmm. or at like
1: some stage, some mutations could affect the lethality of the virus as well.
2: I see. So, so someone in Wuhan and Seattle and in Milan may have a slightly different, genetically different. Uh, form of this virus, but essentially the differences between them don't mean that it's more lethal in Milan necessarily than it is in... in For the moment,
1: yes. For the moment, the the results which we are seeing now, we can at least use this to identify that when this sort of mutation appeared for the first time and what populations do have this mutation so it can be traced back to the original mutated virus... Mm -hmm. So it could tell at least the spread of the virus or, or trace for example where this virus probably is starting to appear and then which particular geo geolocation from where these isolates are reported do have the same mutation telling. Mm-hmm. That means this is the potential route of transmission.
2: in general, is the mechanism then for uh, attacking this virus, um, is it surrounding it? Is it invading it? Uh, how are, are you going about uh, attacking it?
1: I mean, there are two measures, uh, what you call aspects. One is uh, making a vaccine to make people immune before they get attacked by the virus, so that when the virus comes, Then they are immune. They have antibodies
3: Mm
1: -hmm. to contain the virus itself. So then our focus was then different. That people who are infected already, what could be done in terms of uh, saving those people from complications of this infection? Mm So I mean, uh, when when this particular virus uh, tries to enter the cell, it binds to one of the human receptors, Mm. and then it enters the cell. And then it tries to make its it, it copies. And uh, while making copies, one of the genes is overexpressed, which we have seen from previous studies as well. And this overexpression, basically, is recorded as, that means, all of the expressed protein is not used by the virus to make its own copy. It's doing some other business as well. And this some other business, technically, is, triggering a cytokine storm,
0: right.
1: which can lead to edema in lungs, and then uh, uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome, which becomes the leading cause of a death.
2: So how has then uh, this uh, latest round of coronavirus, how, how has this affected your work as a, as a scientist? Like how, how are you coping and, and how are you uh, evolving the way that you do your science?
1: mean, there are uh, certain aspects. For example, I started working on this early from uh, the end of January. I started working on it. Mm -hmm. And mostly what we do is working on the computer. So, in terms of lab work, it's affecting other people. But, I mean, technically, I'm spending more time analyzing this data. So, at home, What you call it because the schools are all kind of uh, now doing distance learning. The kids are also (laughs) doing studies at home. So trying to uh, manage the work balance, although we can work on computer from home. So it's not uh, what you call it affecting in that sense that we cannot work. We could work still. But in managing this work life balance with uh, (laughs) uh, what you call it, uh, distance learning of school for kids and alongside trying to distinguish when should I stop working and when should I work it's just exactly. like they come together so they're confined to a small place right. so more meetings are happening so on the and other things it's uh, affecting the work life a lot
2: well thank you so much for speaking with us um, I hope uh, you and your family are, are safe
1: Yeah, thank you so much you. also stay safe and then hopefully we get through this problem as soon as possible
2: Thanks to everyone that took part in this episode. Science Town is produced by Mark Bose and Alex Arias. I'm Nicholas DeMille. Until next time, thanks for listening.
1: This podcast is a production of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, also known as KAUST. You can find us on all major social channels, wherever you get your podcasts, and at sciencetown.kaust.edu.sa.